Well, our purpose is to equip and encourage the women of Grace Bible Church to shepherd their hearts toward Jesus Christ with the Word of God so that they live gospel-transformed lives, thus strengthening the church in its gospel purpose. Now remember, we have three disciplines under our Wellspring purpose, and as we review these disciplines, let's remind ourselves that we do not ever really, we do not ever graduate from one discipline to go on to the next. We don't get a diploma after having mastered discipline one, which then qualifies us to go on to discipline two and then discipline three. We never graduate from discipline one because it's a lifelong process. Why is this? Let's take a closer look at Discipline 1. Read with me. Discipline 1 is the heart. She prayerfully shepherds her heart toward God through the Word of God, and in particular, the Gospel. All right, let's break this down a bit. Notice the adjective that is used to describe the way we are to shepherd our heart toward the Word of God. What is that word? Prayerfully, right? Prayerfully. One way that helps me to picture this is to picture myself in my kitchen. And we all have been there. Let's pretend we're using a sponge. Now, we know how futile it is, right, to use a dry sponge to clean the kitchen counter or to wash a dirty dish. The sponge, it's hard and it's useless It's when it's dry. But that same sponge is wonderfully soft and it's receptive to being to both receiving that soap for washing and to absorbing and cleaning up a spill when it has been dampened first. Another thing I like to think about is my oven. Okay, so let's pretend I'm preheating my oven for brownies. What happens if I don't preheat that oven first and just put the brownies in? We've maybe done that before. The brownies just burn and they're no good. But when we preheat the brownies first, or I'm sorry, the oven first, it's able to receive those brownies and bake them correctly. And that's why, that's the same thing, that's how it is with our hearts as we bring them before the Word of God. When we prepare ourselves before we meet with God, we're better able to absorb, we're better able to receive what His Word says for us. So let me ask you this. How do you dampen your spiritual sponge or preheat your spiritual oven before you read God's word? Well, perhaps you pray. Good. Perhaps you meditate on the words to a song that's in your Wellspring songbook. That's terrific. Perhaps you review your theme that's in your theme journal so that you are primed and ready to learn something new about God that relates to your theme. That's super. Sisters, next I want to talk about a phrase we use a lot at Grace Bible Church, heart shepherding. Okay, What is heart shepherding? Or let me put it another way. What isn't heart shepherding? Well, heart shepherding is not opening your Bible, reading it, closing it, and saying, oh good, I shepherded my heart today. So now I'm good to go for the rest of the day. Now, definitely being in the Word, it is vital. It is vital. And I'm not saying that heart shepherding isn't being in the Word of God. No. Being in the Word of God, that's the first part of heart shepherding. But there's more to it than that. 
heart shepherding is an ongoing discipline. Notice that word, discipline. It does take discipline to have a mind that is set and that is focused on God's word throughout the day. All right, we need to read our Bibles prayerfully and then we need to extend what we've read um, into our life so that we're thinking biblically as we live out our day. Heart shepherding involves such things as confession of sin. Um, it involves cultivating a right view of God. It involves relinquishing my personal rights. It involves forgiveness. It involves trusting God with his sovereign plan for my life. And it involves informing my mind of biblical truths when my emotions are fighting to take over. You know, all this reminds me of the times when my family goes to California to the beach. I like to take my boogie board into the water and I like to lean on it with my upper body and I just allow myself to rock back and forth gently on the waves. It is so relaxing. However, if I'm not careful and if I'm not purposeful, I will be pulled and taken by the current far from our family spot on the beach. And you know what? It is very hard. It's harder than you'd ever imagine to, to fight that current and to go back to the spot where I need to be, where I should be. And the only way I've found to fight this drift is for me to keep my eyes on our colorful family beach umbrella. And that way, when I notice myself drifting and being pulled away by the current from our family spot, it takes just a little effort, you know, for me to kick myself back until I'm floating right directly in front of that beach umbrella again. Well, in the same way, friends, heart shepherding takes discipline because without being careful to keep my eyes on my proper spot, if you will, without shepherding my heart toward Jesus Christ with the word of God, I am in danger of drifting, and so are you. We're all vulnerable. Let's remember that. We're all vulnerable to our mixed condition weaknesses described right here in our new creation, our gospel implications for the heart pamphlet that we received a few weeks ago. Let's remember all that we're vulnerable to. I'll read a few of them. We're vulnerable to such things as being deceived, we're vulnerable to legalism, to loving the world. We're vulnerable to being self-confident, to growing weary of doing good, and so much more. The fact is, the world that you and I live in constantly pulls us away from Christ. You know, we don't even have to intentionally make ourselves drift from the gospel. Um, we don't even have to work at it because it just naturally happens. As long as we're here in these earthly bodies, we have to work. We've got to work on keeping our focus on the gospel. And that takes discipline. That's why they call this disciplines. So now let's look at discipline two, the home. She ministers to those in her household with a heart for God and for the gospel. Well, today we're going to spend a lot of time focusing on the household, so I'm not going to spend much time here except to say that no matter whether you have a household full of people or you live all by yourself, you 
are responsible for making sure that you have a heart for God and for the gospel in your home, and so am I. If you're single, this applies to you as much as if you're married. Okay, this applies to mothers, daughters, grandmothers, sisters, cousins, aunts, roommates, etc. Ladies, discipline too applies to all of us all the time. Let's look at discipline three, the ministry. With a heart for God and the gospel and fulfilling her ministry within her household, she steps into the church to shepherd others toward God and the gospel. Every woman who is focused on consistent heart shepherding will be overflowing with God, with the God of the word. That's the good news. That woman has a valuable and irreplaceable role in the body of Christ for the mission of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The woman who has been feasting on God's word, on God, she has something to say to others. That woman is helpful and she's useful for the church and for the gospel. In contrast, however, the woman who has been in a spiritual desert, you know, because she doesn't read her Bible constantly, that woman doesn't have much to say, except maybe to repeat things she read months ago. What about the woman who does read her Bible but is just going through the motions because her mind isn't fully engaged on what she's reading or because she doesn't prayerfully make sure she's reading with God as she's in his word. And I've been there. That woman, she doesn't have much to say either. You don't want that. You don't want to be that kind of woman, and neither do I. For God's sake, for our heart's sake, you need to be a different kind of woman. The kind of woman who shepherds her heart towards Jesus Christ with the word of God. You know, we're all counting on each other to be that kind of woman. Well, have you ever buttoned up a blouse or a shirt only to notice that it's buttoned up all wrong? You know, the whole thing is on screwy. Why? Well, because you started with the wrong button on top. Let's be sure to start with the right button. Now, before I begin this last illustration, I want to emphasize I want to emphasize that the focus of this illustration, and maybe you've seen it before, it's not when you and I have our time in the Word. Some of us meet with the Lord in the morning. I know some of us work crazy schedules. It's better for us to meet with the Lord in the evening. So I'm not talking about that you have to meet with the Lord in the morning, but the focus is on that 24-hour period or that 23-hour period between our meeting times with God. The emphasis is not when but how. Um, You and I use that time in between to fuel a strong walk for Jesus. Okay. So here's my illustration. Our lives represent this empty jar that needs to be filled daily. Okay, we need to begin with that right button. And I have some pebbles here, and the pebbles represent all the cares of the world that we deal with on a daily basis. Then I have some stones, and these stones, they represent um, proper biblical heart shepherding I was just talking about that centers on the Bible. Okay, well, when we neglect our Bible reading or when we don't 
prayerfully read God's word and carefully read God's word and intentionally read God's word, what happens? Okay, when we make the mistake of thinking that heart shepherding means just reading our Bible in the morning or, or the evening or whenever uh, our designated time is, and then we walk away, what does that look like? Well, all the cares of the world will crowd in and make us drift off course. It's like putting these pebbles, and those of you listening, here come the pebbles. It's like putting these pebbles in first. And I'm going to fill the jar about halfway. Okay? So we put all the cares of the world, we just let our day happen. And before you know it, we're, we're just overcome with everything we're dealing with. And then, oh yeah, I've got to shepherd my heart. Oh yeah. And we're trying to cram the gospel on top. And you see, I could only get three gospel rocks in. And, and it just doesn't work. Okay, it's silly. Let's, let's look at it another way. Okay, if we put in our gospel stones first, okay, if we put in the stones first... One, two, three, four, big one in, five. If we put those stones in first, then all of those little things that happen to us through the day, life, they'll just naturally find a place around the gospel stones. And they'll just find a place in because you are directing your heart to think rightly with using the gospel as your guide. It reminds me of a cheer, you know, when people are uh, picketing, what do we want? Raises. When do we need it? Now. Well, my cheer is, what do I need? The gospel. When do I need it? Now. What do I need? The gospel. And you get the idea. All right, there, the stones, the little pebbles will find a place and our days will be much better. Okay, because as we extend what we read into our thought life um, throughout the day, we can, we can be better Christians for that. How do you do that? How do you extend the gospel throughout the day? Well, it's really not that hard if you think of it. You're already doing it, right? You're preparing your hearts. Then you can maybe review your theme and your theme journal. You can write a great Bible verse on a sticky note. I like to take a dry erase marker and write on my bathroom mirror so that when I'm brushing my teeth, I can review a great verse or something that God taught me that day. I can send a text message to my Wellspring buddy, and she can text me back, and we can encourage each other that way. There are a lot of great ways that we can extend the gospel throughout our day. And then we'll be able to deal with daily circumstances, those pebbles, according to God's word. Then we'll develop a discipline of rehearsing the gospel to ourselves by renewing our minds and by reminding ourselves what has been accomplished by God in the gospel through Jesus Christ. We're going to start our day great. We're going to end our day great. I'm not saying we're not going to experience temptations. Oh, we will. Emotions, we will. Hard things, we will. But 
those experiences will not undo us. And they won't make us drift off course because why? Well, we're able to think rightly about them. We're able to shepherd our hearts toward Jesus Christ and the gospel. We're able to live gospel-transformed lives that strengthen our household and the church. Doesn't that make you excited? Hallelujah. Let's pray and thank God for this. Father God, thank you that you do not leave us alone to figure this out. Thank you that you've given us new hearts. You warn us, caution. You tell us how we are vulnerable. And you give us the tools to go through our day in an honoring way where you are made much of. Lord, help us to not only shepherd our hearts well, but to encourage each other in doing that. Lord, thank you for this lesson. And we pray that you would be made much of in this lesson. For I know you love the home, and it is important to you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, please, um, if you haven't already, get out your notes, and we're going to get started. Um, As I mentioned a few minutes ago, this morning we're going to focus on the home because the home is very much on God's mind. And we're going to discover what God thinks about household relationships. We need to see how discipline one and discipline two are connected. Okay? Let's practice. Discipline one, one hand. Discipline two, and you're just going to intertwine your fingers. They are connected. That's what I want you to walk away with today. And they're intertwined where? Throughout the entire scripture, from the Old Testament to the New Testament. Today we're going to look at scripture and we're going to find examples of people in the Bible, including women, who did. They grasped God's heart for the household. And then, sadly, there are a lot of examples of those who did not. We're going to see the impact and consequences of these people's choices, both positive and negative, across generations. And finally, it's my hope that this lesson will remind and encourage us not to lose hope, okay, but to persevere in the call and the privilege to cultivate Christ-centered homes. Well, as you see on your notes, there are nine categories that will help us see God's heart in Scripture for household relationships. Now, this lesson, like last time's lesson, is called a survey for good reason, because we need to discover passages from the whole Bible to gain a full sense of God's heart for the home. Now, I want you to picture us climbing board a helicopter together, okay? We're going to fly over that entire Bible from left, left to right. First, I want you to keep in mind we're not going to be able to look over every single scripture reference that's in your notes. Instead, we're just going to fly over a lot of them. Okay, we'll hover over some passages, and I'll even land us and put us down so we can walk around uh, uh, together and spend some time in other passages. Um, Some, this is the good news, you've already prepared, you've already looked at some of those verses for your homework, so you'll You'll understand when we go there, you go, oh, I know this one. So it's great. Well, this morning, we're going to begin by looking at Mosaic Law. Well, as Christians, we are not under Mosaic Law, thankfully. 
For example, we don't obey the command, honor your father and mother, because the Ten Commandments say we need to. But we do obey because Jesus taught that, okay, in Matthew 15. Scott Maxwell explains it this way. He says, it doesn't mean that it has no value under Mosaic law. It does have value. Why? Because it reveals God's heart. All scripture, we know, is revelation. And all scripture is profitable, and all scripture in the Old Testament provides examples. But when it comes to understanding what to do in regards to our household relationships, we want to obey for the right reasons under Christ. We exalt Christ, and he is greater than Mosaic law. So, are you ready to begin our survey? Okay, because we're going to cover a lot of scriptural ground, and I'm going to talk fast sometimes, you may either want to um, turn in your Bibles or look it up on your phone um, as we cover these, or you may decide, hey, it's too much. I'm just going to sit back, listen, and take notes. And then later on in the week as you review the lesson, I do encourage you to spend time looking at all the passages on your own. So let's begin the heart and home helicopter tour. Okay, let's climb aboard and take off. Ready? Fasten your seatbelts. Make sure your backs are in upright position. And let's look at number one on your outline. Uh, The first stopping point in our tour is Exodus 20, where we see what God is revealing to us in Scripture about the connection between our heart and our household relationships. So by the time the Bible gets to verse 12 in Exodus 20, we're in the middle of those Ten Commandments. All right, Exodus 20, 12. It says, Honor your father and your mother that your days may be prolonged in the land which the Lord your God gives you. Let's notice the first human relationship that God deals with is the parent-child relationship. It's by the way that children respond to their fathers and their mothers. And after that, what's the very next thing that he's concerned about? Look with me at Exodus 20:13. You shall not murder. You know, I kind of chuckled about that. I thought, you shall not murder right after honoring your father and mother. And I thought, that's kind of humorous. <laughs> but then by the grace of God, I was struck with the importance of placing that verse right there after honoring your mother and father. For God knows. You know, it's in the family, isn't it? It's in the household where the rubber meets the road. It's the place where extreme opposites are, can't they be? It's where we love those in our household, and it's also where we're prone to see each other's faults, to be short-tempered, to be critical of each other, and to be tempted to gossip about fellow family members to each other. In a Charlie Brown movie I heard, I saw recently, Linus, refers to his sister Lucy, and he says, siblings are the crab grass in the lawn of life. (laughs) You know, and even though I thought that's funny, it does, it shows how challenging it can be to love those in our household. So as we sit here, let's remember Jesus' Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, where he says that murder begins where? It begins in the heart. Have you heard the ancients were told, verse 21, you shall not commit murder, and whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court? But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. 
And whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court. And whoever says, you fool, shall be guilty enough to go to the fiery hell. So, if we're unjustly angry with someone, we have violated the deeper meaning of the law against murder. Wow. God cares deeply about the home and the household relationships, doesn't he? All right, let's go over to the next verse, which is moving into concern for the marriage and for husband and wife household relationships. I'm in Exodus 20:14. You shall not commit adultery. Now we're still in that first bullet point on our outline. And now we're going to read Exodus 20:17, and we're going to see God's concern for our neighbor's household. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. Do you notice how specific God is getting here? Hey, there's no way to miss it, is there? God wants his children to think rightly about the household and everything and everyone in or associated with that household. No exceptions. (laughs) All right, friends. Ready? We're going to go fast, I told you. So it's time to climb aboard and take a short flight. Two books over to Deuteronomy. And we are going to stay in Deuteronomy for a while. From the Bible, we learn that Israel wanders through the wilderness and is not allowed to go into the promised land. They have to wait 40 long years until that generation that kept complaining and would not trust God dies off. Okay, so now we're talking to those kids who were originally told to honor the Lord, their God, the Lord, their God. They are now about to enter the promised land and conquer it. Now, those kids had grown up understanding that God wanted them to honor their parents. And now that they're grown up, they're parents themselves. So Moses is at the end of his life. And he is now reteaching the law prior to their going into the promised land. We're going to skip over Deuteronomy 4 and go to Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 through 9. Now, these verses are called the Shema. It's for the Hebrew word that means to hear, to listen, and to obey. As we read them, let's note the verbs and the references to the heart. Remember, the heart is the inner person with the mind the affections, and the will. Let's notice how God wants them to show their commitment to him by loving him with all they are and with no exceptions. Hear, O Israel, verse 4, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Okay, there's discipline one. These words, verse 6, which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. He's saying the words of God in your heart are to come into contact with one another. That's discipline one also. And now, what does he say next? Let's look at verse 7. You shall teach them diligently to your sons, and you shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise up, and you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, And they shall be as frontals on your forehead, and you shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Okay, that's discipline 
too. All right, let's recap God's heart for the household. Here it is. Israel, everything you do in your household, from lying down to go to sleep, to getting up from sleep, to just walking and talking on the way, as you leave your houses and are headed out for the day, there is the word of God. As you come home to your houses, there is the word of God. Your household, Israel, is to be dominated by your concern for what? The word of God, right? Let's be sure that you and I grasp this inseparable connection that follows right on the heels of love the Lord your God with all your heart. Remember, discipline one and discipline two are what? They're inseparable. Remember that. There's one more really cool thing I want us to notice before we move on. As, as we just read, the Israelites were um, to teach the next generation to fear the God of the covenant. Now, as a retired teacher, I was delighted to notice how our loving and committed and caring God planned for how the adults are to teach all kinds of learners in the next generation. Right? We have the visual learners. How will they do it? They're going to see the word of God. Okay, Write them on the doorposts of your houses and on your gates. What about the auditory learners? They're going to hear the word of God. Okay, He says, talk about them. What about the tactile, kinesthetic movers and learners? Well, they're going to learn through movement, and they're going to learn through action. God says, tie them as symbols to your hands and bind them on your forehead. And why is this so important? Let's look at Deuteronomy 6.2. So that you and your children and their children after them may fear the Lord your God as long as you live. Now, how did God want them to handle his commandments? He wanted them to leave an imprint, an impression on their households, on the households, and on their children's hearts. Right? Now, in order for something to leave an impression, it has to press. That word press is in there for a long time, right? Well, God wanted the Israelites to impress his words on their own hearts and on the hearts of the next generation by living them out how? On a daily basis. Doing what? Talking about them and thinking about them and by writing them down even what they wore and even how they decorated their houses were to serve as a reminder of the law of God. Deuteronomy 6, 8, and 9. The older generation was to constantly model their utter loyalty to God in every possible way. Do you see how discipline one makes a strong impression on discipline two? And let's also notice how God places a burden for discipline one and discipline two on each individual adult because the next generation needs to see those disciplines lived out before them, bound tightly to them so that they can learn how to fear God. All right, we're down on the ground, so let's walk over. Just uh, just one chapter to chapter seven, verses one through five. And we're going to see another requirement that God places on the older generation. 
In verses 1, 2, 3, 1, 2, and 3, the Israelites are told that when they enter the promised land, they are supposed to destroy the inhabitants totally, make no treaty with them, and show no mercy. Let's look at verse 3. Furthermore, you shall not intermarry with them, you shall not give your daughters to their sons, and you shall not give, and you shall not take their daughters for your sons. Okay, that's pretty radical. Why? Let's look at verse 4 for the answer. For they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. Aha. Now I want you to put a star and asterisk by that verse. Um, because we need to see it played out in history, and we're going to see that in the history of Israel in a few minutes. Note the dire consequences of allowing sons and daughters to intermarry with those of another God. Okay, here it is. The anger of the Lord will be kindled against you, and he will quickly destroy you. Okay. The burden was on all adults to obey by not intermarrying. And then it was specifically on the parents to not allow their children to intermarry. Let's not miss the heart issue, ladies, behind the burden. Parents who allow their children to intermarry will quickly have their hearts, their hearts turned away from worshiping the one and only God. And then children get their hearts turned away from God when they get into a marriage relationship with somebody who has another God. That's important. Okay, it's time to start heading over all the way to Malachi. But on the way, we're going to make a quick pit stop, okay, in Psalm 78, 1 through 8. It's listed on your outline. And as you're finding it, let me tell you that here's another example of the inseparable connection with what I do with my heart and the impact on the next generation. As we read, let's count how many generations are listed here, shall we? I'm beginning in verse 1. Listen, O my people, to my instructions. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings of old which we have heard and known, and our fathers have told us. We will not conceal them from their children, but tell to the generation to come the praises of the Lord and his strength and his wondrous works that he has done. For he established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers that they should teach them to their children, that the generation to come, verse 6, might know, even the children yet to be born, that they may arise and tell them to their children, verse 7, that they should be that they should put their confidence in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments and not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation that did not prepare its heart and whose spirit was not faithful to God. Okay, so who do we have here? There are, one, the ancestors. Okay, two, the people in that current generation. Three, the children yet to be born and for their grandchildren. So that's four generations. The Israelites are not to follow after the example of their parents who failed to shepherd their hearts, who quickly forgot about God, and who became disloyal to him. 
Right? Look at that, what God says about their hearts. God declared that their hearts were stubborn and rebellious. And even though the passage addresses Israel, the principle applies to us believers today. We need to know that God cares about our hearts and the impact on the next generation. We are all responsible to declare the truth about God to ourselves and to the next generation. And we're not to separate God's concern for what? Our hearts and his concern for the household. Remember, they are intertwined. Okay, so next we're going to fly over to the very last book of the Old Testament, to the book of Malachi, where the returning exiles are rebuked for their hard-heartedness toward God's love for them. And they're called to repentance. Malachi chapter 4 anticipates the return of the Lord Jesus in judgment. It exhorts them to fear his name and to remember his law. And just before a 400-year period of silence comes between the Old Testament and the New Testament, God promises to send forth Elijah to announce the Messiah's arrival. So Malachi 4, and I'm going to begin, I'm, yes, and I'm going to begin in verse 4. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the decrees and laws I gave him at Horeb for all Israel. See, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. Verse 6. He will turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the hearts of the children to their parents or else I come and strike the land with total destruction. Wow. Okay, so what's he saying here? God's way of preparing his people for his coming included making sure that household relationships were as strong as they should be. God's concern is that his people are ready to receive him by making sure that the father's hearts and the hearts of their children are connected that their relationships are right and that they're sincere the way they're supposed to be. Well, now we get to fly over to the New Testament to see how this is fulfilled. And we're going to go to Luke 1, and we're going to learn that Zacharias, the priest, and his wife Elizabeth are going to have a son whose name shall be John. Okay, we're going to hover here over Luke 1, 16 and 17 and read about the restoration of the household relationships, which was prophesied in Malachi. Verse 16, And he will turn many of the sons of Israel back to the Lord their God. Verse 17, It is he who will go on as a forerunner before him in the spirit and power of Elijah. Here's what we need to get. To turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of, of the righteous. So, as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. So we just read about the restoration of household relationships that was prophesied in Malachi. Okay, we're going to get on that helicopter and we're going to cruise over to Ephesians 6, 1 through 4. And we're going to see again how God has this inseparable relationship between the heart and the home. And here, we're going to read a repeat of the fifth commandment, but now it's given under Christ and the church from the Apostle Paul to us. It, he says, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. 
verse 2. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may go well with you and that you may enjoy long life on earth. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Do you notice how Paul is teaching both the children and the parents here? Because that's the way the Lord is honored in the household. Here's another way we could say this. Children, you are to shepherd your own hearts in such a way that you are able to obey your parents. Parents, you are to shepherd your own hearts in such a way, verse 4, that you do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And here's special instructions to you fathers. Is you need to shepherd your hearts in such a way so that you do not completely frustrate your children. So now our survey is going to take us five books to the right. You're going to go to 1 Timothy 3. In verses 1 through 3, Paul is instructing Timothy regarding the church. And it's crucial for the church to have leaders who are qualified to lead and who can set an example for the rest of the body. As we look at it, let's notice how much emphasis is placed on the heart and the home. Paul is showing us that household relationships are a measure of a man's qualifications to lead others because if he's going to be part of what God's doing in the world, especially in the church, how could he not be concerned about the household? It's very near and dear to God's heart. So 1 Timothy 3, 4, and 5 says he must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for the church of God? In other words, if he plays leapfrog, as Scott Maxwell likes to say, over his household relationships, why on earth would you put him in charge of the church? If he doesn't know how to shepherd the little flock that lives in his house, he doesn't know how to shepherd the big flock. If he's not faithful to those little things, he is not going to be faithful to the big things. So here we see the relationship again between the heart and the household. God is very concerned to tie them together. Great. We talked about the men. Hey, we're not off the hook, right? What about us women? God is very concerned for us too. Let's see how the Bible addresses the connection between our hearts and our household relationships. We're going to move over two books to the right. We're going to come to Titus, whose major thrust is on equipping the churches of Crete to be effective Christians. Let's take a look at Titus chapter 2, verses 3 through 5. Okay, and as you do, let's notice the emphasis on the household. Now you looked up these verses in your homework. It says, older women likewise are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips, nor enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good, so that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands, so that the word of God will not be dishonored. What is the main concern? Look at the last ten words. So that 
the word of God will not be dishonored. It is the word of God. So here's what we need to see. A woman's faithfulness in the home is of great significance to the gospel because the way a woman shepherds her heart and home impacts the way others speak about God in this word. This is so important, I'm going to repeat it. A woman's faithfulness in the home is of great significance to the gospel because the way a woman shepherds her heart and home impacts the way others speak about God's word. Wow. Ladies, we are going to take the shortest break in the history of Wellspring, (laughs) five minutes. Um, But before you leave your seats, I want you to please have your Bibles open to the book of Ruth. Um, It's in the Old Testament between the book of Judges and 1 Samuel. And also you can flip your notes over to the top of page 2, number 2. And we'll come back in about uh, 4 minutes to 8. Thank you. Okay. Well, we're on one Old Testament woman who grasped God's heart for the family and the home. Well, we're going to um, begin back in the Old Testament and talk about Ruth. Here is a woman who grasped God's heart for the family and for the home. Now, her life took place at a time before there was a king in Israel and when the judges ruled. I want us to notice, and if you just want to flip back one page in your Bible to the book of Judges, that's just one book before Ruth. Let's notice the extremely sad state of affairs um, in Israel at that time. Judges 21:25 says, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. I know. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Sadly, because there was no submission to authority of God, people, even priests, ladies, did as they thought was right in their own eyes, and sin was rampant. In the midst of this dark period of history, oh, we get treated, here's our treat, to a virtuous woman named Ruth. She lives in troubled times, and she faces her own really terrible grief, yet she clings to God. Now, if you know the story of Ruth, you'll remember that she and another Moabitess, Orpah, they married two recent immigrants called Mahalon and Kilion. And these two men and their parents, they arrived in Moabite territory to escape the famine back home in Bethlehem. And so now some years pass, and the men's father dies, and then both of them die as well. Both of the men die as well. Yikes, right? That's hard. So that leaves the three women to fend for themselves. And we've got the two Moabitesses named Ruth and Orpah, and we've got their Jewish uh, mother-in-law, Naomi. And so when Naomi hears that the famine back home in Bethlehem is over, um, that was the original reason, remember, why she migrated to Moab. She decides to go back home. But before she leaves, she encourages her two daughters-in-law to stay in their own land with their own people, their own language, and their own culture. I mean, who knows? In time, they may even find new husbands, right? So Orpah accepts the council. She stays home and in Moab. And you know what? Nothing is ever heard of her again. But Ruth, she clings 
to her mother-in-law. She's very determined. Let's look at Ruth 1, 16 and 17, where she declares her loyalty. She says, do not urge me to leave or turn back from following you. For where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. Thus may the Lord do to me, and worse, if anything but death depart, or parts you and me. Verse 18, and when she saw she was determined to go with her, what could you say? She said no more. Wow, ladies, uh, did you get the importance of Ruth's decision? Ruth declared that she was prepared to abandon her own people, her own language, her own culture, her own land, her own religion, um, provided that she could stay with Naomi. Here's a woman who got it. She grasped the impact that was being made on her household because of the conviction she has. I don't worship any other gods. I worship Yahweh. I worship the God of Israel. You know, she wanted no part of those Moabite gods. She wanted Yahweh to be her God, and she wanted to remain committed to the family she married into. She was demonstrating her love for God by caring for her household and by loving her widowed mother-in-law, the very woman who tried to ditch her in Moab so that she could go on living a life of bitterness. D.A. Carson says she could not have known that in making that choice, she would soon find herself married again. She could not have known that that marriage would make her an ancestor, not only to the imposing Davidic dynasty, Davidic dynasty, but to the supreme king who centuries later would spring from it. Wow. Let's look at Ruth again. She is a wonderful role model for us to follow. But sadly, ladies, the Old Testament is also full of examples of men and women who failed to grasp God's heart for the home and for the household. And now we're on numeral three on our outline, and we're going to fly over some Bible verses for you to look at on your own. Like Exodus 4.21, the account of Moses failing to circumcise his son. And 1 Samuel 2. We're going to hover here because it's important to mention Eli, a priest of God. He's a sad example of a father and spiritual ruler because for him, it was more important to please his two rebellious sons than to follow God. And then he brought disgrace onto the Lord for doing that. Now let's head over to 1 Samuel 7, 15 through 8, 5. Now as you're finding 1 Samuel, I want um, us to remember that Samuel, he grew up where? He grew up in Eli's house. He was aware of all that was going on with Eli's sons. And remember, I told you that he failed to remember that God wanted his chosen people to love and to fear him. And Eli failed to instill this love and fear of God to his sons, to the next generation. You know, Eli thought more of peace in his household than peace with God. He neglected his duty. And so Samuel grew up in this household. Let's begin with 1 Samuel 8. And let's see what kind of father Samuel became. Because he grew up and he got to have some heart and home shepherding. Let's see what happened. 
First uh, Samuel 8, 1. And it came when Samuel was old, he appointed his sons judges over Israel. Now the name of his firstborn was Joel, and the name of his second was Abijah. They were judging in Beersheba. His sons, however, did not walk in his ways, but they turned aside after dishonest gain, and they took bribes, and they perverted justice. Okay, what are we seeing here, ladies? Can we identify all three of our disciplines? A man is to take care of his heart. That's discipline one. Okay, there's an inseparable connection between the heart and the home. Discipline two. Okay, it's either a positive or a negative chain reaction. It's like a domino effect. If he doesn't take care of his home, it's going to have a negative effect on other people. But by God's grace, when a person is shepherding his heart and caring for his household, the impact on the body is good, right? And there's discipline three. Okay, it's time for us to fly over to 1 Kings 16. And as you turn in your Bibles, I want to point out a few important passages on your outline. We're not going to have time to look at today, but they are a sad account. They are sad accounts of those who loved God, but, okay, they loved God, but they failed to grasp God's heart for the family and for the home. So there's David. God makes his covenant with David to make his house mighty and that there would always be a king that would come from David's line. So God's commitment is to David's household. And then, what does David do? By chapters 11 and 12 of Samuel, I'm going to say one word and you'll know what I mean. Bathsheba. Okay, God says, well, since you split up another family's Another man's family in a murderous way. Wait until you see what happens to your family. You know, it's a good example of a family that started strong, but that goes awry quickly. How? By David's own undoing. So please read those passages on your own later. Okay. Now, later on, you can also please look at 1 Kings 11, and you can read about David's son, Solomon. You can read how Solomon neglected caring about his relationship with God and with his household, and thus he brought great pain to himself, but also to the nation. Okay, well, what can we conclude so far? Well, we can't conclude from Scripture that the household is not important, right? I think we're seeing that. It absolutely is. In fact, it's a decisive place, relationally speaking. Well, we're going to set our helicopter down in First Kings for a while, and we're going to see how things go from bad to worse after Solomon's death when the kingdom is divided into the northern kingdom, and that's referred to as Israel. And then we have the southern kingdom, and you know that's referred to as Judah. Right, so this was the time in history... Unfortunately, when there were many more evil kings than there were good kings. Okay, these were kings who failed to serve God, to love him alone. They neglected heart shepherding. They neglected their households. They failed to obey Mosaic law. And they led, sadly, they led their people into sin. Here's Ahab. He was king in Israel, and he was a glaring example. We're going to pick up the narrative in 1 Kings 16.30. And I'm going to read, Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. 
It came about as though it had been a trivial thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, that he married Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbal, king of the Sidonians, and went to serve Baal and worship him. Now, remember that star I asked you to put way back when we were in Deuteronomy 7, 4, where God didn't want the Israelites to allow their children to intermarry because their hearts would be turned away from serving him? All right, so here we see what happens. Ahab, he was already so used to idolatry, ladies, he didn't even flinch when deciding to take Jezebel as his wife. And history tells us that Jezebel grew up in a household where it was acceptable to kill for personal gain and to worship any god you choose. Let's look at the progression of heart hardening. Once Ahab took Jezebel as his wife, what did this wretched king do? 1 Kings 16, 32 and 33, he erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria. Ahab also made the Asherah. Thus, Ahab did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel than all the kings of Israel who were before him. Gulp. Well, it's not over. Let's find out what kind of wife Jezebel was. Jezebel, you may remember, was a woman who hated God. And all she did, she tried to eradicate God's prophets from the northern kingdom. You can read about that in 1 Kings 18.4. She was a woman who had murder in her heart and who thought only of doing what would benefit her. And it's no secret that Israel was plagued with idolatry through history. We know that. But most of the time, you know, they kind of continued to give God a little lip service, but not Jezebel. She wanted to destroy the worship of Yahweh. All right, her husband Ahab, he was equally as guilty before the Lord. And we're going to see in 1 Kings 21, he was pouty, he was temperamental, he was moody, and he was egotistical. 1 Kings 21:25, it gives this commentary about Ahab. It says, surely there was no one like Ahab who sold himself to do evil in the sight of the Lord. Why? Because Jezebel, his wife, incited him. So one day, Jezebel finds out her husband Ahab is sullen and he's vexed because there's a man named Naboth. And Naboth wouldn't sell his vineyard to Ahab. So Jezebel takes matters in her own hands. She schemes and she invents lies against Naboth. And she incites people to kill him. What does she do? She lies, she schemes, and she has an innocent man murdered so that her husband can acquire a piece of property. Yeah, wow. Jezebel has absolutely no regard for the ways of God. She has no regard for the home and for the family. And it is a trivial thing for her to take a man's life just to get some land to rob his family of inheritance. Now, this is a really big deal because in Israel, the land was supposed to stay. It was supposed to stay in the family. It was supposed to be handed down from generation to generation. So, this family, though, turned the home into a place that spawns evil, evil, even against one another. They have rejected any semblance of God's heart for the household. There's a pervasive rottenness. And it is spreading. And sadly, it's not the end. 
All right, we're going to turn to 2 Kings 2. This is like a scary movie, where eventually Ahab and Jezebel had a daughter named Athaliah. Now, let's read and find out what kind of daughter these two wicked parents produced. So now we're going to take our story to the southern kingdom called Judah. Athaliah married Joram, king of Judah. And I'm going to pick up the story in 2 Kings 11, 1 through 3. Athaliah and, Jordan have a son, and Joram have a son named Ahaziah. And after their son is killed, his mother, Athaliah, is so zealous to rule as queen mother and to control Judah. What did she do? Verse 1, she rose and destroyed all the royal offspring. Yikes! Did we read that correctly? Let's see. She killed her own grandchildren so that she could sit on the throne. D.A. Carson writes the following about this evil woman, Athaliah. She is the utterly vile mother of Ahaziah, the king of Judah, who was killed. Um, One could imagine a lot of different actions that a queen mother might take on learning of the assassination of her son. Athaliah's reaction was to kill her entire family. She so commands the palace guard that her dead son's children and grandchildren are wiped out, except, unbeknownst to her, for her infant grandson, Joash, who is saved by an aunt. And that aunt may very well have been killed herself, and she secretly hides them away with a wet nurse. Thus, Athaliah secures power for herself. So here we have an account of two women, and they're related to each other. One, that wretched grandmother, Athaliah, who murdered her own grandchildren, and the other, a God-fearing aunt, who risked her own life in order to save her nephew from his grandmother's murderous tyranny, and who, in thus doing, spares the divinic lineage. Oh, man. Now, it's really easy for us to be appalled and totally repulsed by Athaliah, right? her wicked behavior, and we should be. (laughs) But we should not miss the fact that we need to be on guard for our hearts and for our households. For we know, ladies, apart from God's intervening in our own lives, what will happen to our hearts? Okay, they're going to become quickly hardened. They're going to be self-grasping, self-serving, even murderous. As we quickly get angry, or frustrated with our roommates, our children, our husbands, our parents, our house guests, any family members, anyone else in our household who gets in the way of our being queen mother in our own homes, right? Ruling in our own roosts, thinking, this is my castle. Let's remember, we came into the world the very same way, with the very same sinful hearts as they had, and that's why we must guard our hearts. We must lay them bare before the word of God. We must plead for a heart, for our household that matches God's so that we carry the same burden and the same concern for the household that he has. Here's the fact. Just the facts. Here's the fact. We will impact our home and our family. The question is, how? Okay, so let's review. We started by looking at the connection between our heart and household relationships in Scripture. And then we saw Ruth and the way that her heart yeah, for God impacted her household in a beautiful way. And now we're going to see how destructive it is when there is rejection. I'm sorry, we've just seen how destructive it is when there is rejection of God's heart for the household relationships. 
Now remember, this is a survey, right, of the whole Bible. So now we have to head back. The Old Testament, we're there. We're going to head back a few books to Deuteronomy 6. We're going to be on number four in your outline. Now, context-wise, we're back on the plains of Moab, where Moses is reteaching the law to Israel. Now, this is just 40 years after they left slavery in Egypt and long before there was a king. What is the dire warning when life is good? When we're living on easy street, okay, when nobody's rocking the boat. Well, let's read about it. Um, Deuteronomy 6, 10 through 12. Let's see what Moses is warning them about. Then it shall come about when the Lord your God brings you into the land which he swore to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give you great and splendid cities which you did not build, and houses full of all good things that you did not fill, and hewn cisterns which you did not dig, vineyards and olive trees which you did not plant, and you eat and are satisfied. Then watch yourself that you do not forget the Lord who brought you from the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery. All right, now how would you paraphrase what we just read? Right? Here's one way. Warning! Caution! Danger! When you are full and when you are satisfied, when you are experiencing blessings after blessings, you need to be careful not to forget the Lord who rescued you from slavery. Deuteronomy 8, 10 through 20 is full of words of caution and warning and heart shepherding, ladies. And we need to turn there. And we're going to begin in 8, 10. When you have eaten and are satisfied and you bless, you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land which he has given you. Beware that you do not forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his ordinances and his statutes, which I am commanding. So what's the danger? What happens to a heart that is not properly guarded? Verse 14. Then your heart will become proud, and you will forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. So, when you're in a blessed situation and things are going well, that is the time to be concerned. And the way you're going to know that you've forgotten the Lord is you're not obeying and you are deceiving yourself. And verse 17, other ways you may say, my power and the strength of my hand made me this wealth. Christian, we must understand that the household, the very place of blessing, it can be the exact place that forgets God that he is the blessing giver. It's very easy to forget God in the home. Here's the good news. Thankfully, in Christ, a household can become a platform for impacting everyone else that is in the household. And you can impact that household for the gospel. Yay! Number five, the impact of one's faith on the entire household. We're going to spend a few minutes all the way over in Acts 16 where we'll see two different accounts of how just one person coming to faith in Christ can impact the entire household. Now, as you're turning to Acts 16, I want to mention to you Acts 10. And on your own, you can read about the righteous and God-fearing centurion Cornelius. 
he was divinely directed to send for Peter so that he could hear the gospel. Cornelius invited his close friends and relatives in Acts 10, 20, 40 to hear the message that Peter was going to preach. Here's what I want you to get. Cornelius brings the gospel and his household together. Now to Acts 16, 11 through 15. Here's Paul and Timothy and Luke, and they're traveling from city to city, strengthening the churches in Europe and Asia. Acts 16.10 tells us that they are called by God to preach, preach the gospel in Macedonia. And they finally arrive in Philippi, and here's where we read about Lydia. Now, like Cornelius, Lydia believed in the God of Israel. And after the Lord opened her heart to respond to the gospel, Acts 16.14, she also brought the, the proclamation of the gospel to her household. Verse 15, Lydia heard the gospel and had her heart opened by the Lord, and that made a huge impact on her household. Here's what we need to get. Lydia brings the gospel and her household together. So now we're going to go to Acts 16, 22 through 34. Sometime later, Paul and Silas are thrown in jail because of an uprising. uprising. Okay, So they, uh, officers arrest them, beat them. They're taken to the innermost part of a dark, smelly prison. Their feet are clamped into stocks so they couldn't move. They can't get comfortable. They're bloody. They're broken. They're bruised men. They're probably in excruciating pain. And what do they do? They're praying. They're singing hymns to God. And they're singing so loudly at midnight that the other prisoners are listening. And then their get-out-of-jail-free jail card suddenly appears, right? In the form of a great earthquake. And in the middle of all that violent shaking of the foundations, ta-da, the doors open and their chains fall off. Wow. Now the Philippian jailer, he assumes that everyone escaped, which means that he, the jailer, would be executed as a consequence for failing his duties as a jailer. He takes the sword and he is about to thrust it into his belly. When Paul cries out in a loud voice, Hey, stop! We are all still here. Now the jailer asks the only reasonable question after witnessing this miracle. What must I do to be saved? And what is the very next thing? that he does after he believes in the Lord Jesus? Acts 16, 32-34, the jailer brings the gospel and his household together. And they're all saved, and they're baptized, and they have their first small group meeting right there in the house, right? And they were rejoicing greatly in their salvation. Notice the impact that just one person made on the household. Now, all these are instances where the household is the first place that that impact is made. Now, God desires to use us, ladies, in the same way. He desires to have us bring the gospel in our households together each and every day. Now, how can we do this effectively? Well, first and foremost, we must be sure that we are marinating in the truth of the gospel daily so that we become the hands and the feet of Christ as we bring him into the household. Okay? Because why? Because we love the Lord Jesus Christ and because we love his word. Now we're going to read about six, the attack on the home. 
Let's head over to 2 Timothy 3, and as you're turning there, I want to ask yourself this question. Okay, since there's such a link between the heart and the home, is there any surprise that the home is the place of constant attack by the enemy? 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 7. But realize this, in the last days, difficult times will come, for men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Verse 5, holding to a form of godliness, although they have have denied its power. Hmm. What do we do? Avoid such men as these. For among them are those who enter into households. And what do they do? They captivate weak women. Why? Because these weak women are weighted down with sins. They're led on by various impulses. What are they doing? Verse 7. They're doing something right. They're always learning. But they're never able to come to the knowledge of truth. 2 Timothy 3.5, avoid such men as these. Paul tells Timothy that they creep into households and capture weak women. Sisters, this terminology, it's one that is used to describe a thief, a crook, a a villain, someone who is creeping around, a really creepy kind of guy, right? Of course, we women are not so gullible as to open our doors to a salesman in a cheap overcoat, knocking and selling deceptive lies and ungodliness. Okay, so imagine how easy it would be to detect deception if a man rang your doorbell and said, Good morning, I'm here to give away free materials that can be put to immediate use in your households. These are multi-purpose, multi-generational materials. They're so potent that they are guaranteed to make you selfish and lovers of money. And they'll help you be arrogant. And they'll increase your ability to use abusive language. And you can curse your parents. And you can show no gratitude. And you can have no respect for what's holy. Oh, and not only that, you're going to quickly lose your normal affection for your family so that peacemaking will be the furthest thing from your mind. Not only will you be slanderous, but you'll lack self-control. And you're going to become reckless and and conceited and you will have no love for what is good and you're going to seek your own pleasure rather than seek what pleases God well we know our enemy is much cleverer than that right for of course if that really happened we would slam the door we'd lock it twice we'd declare, we would declare we're never going to allow anything like that to enter our home because we live for Jesus right and We aren't like those weak women described in 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 8. Well, what else does it say about those women? 2 Timothy 3, starting in the middle of verse 6, it says that those women are weighted down with sins. They're led by various impulses. They're always learning, and they're never able to come to the knowledge of truth. So evidently, these are women in the household. They don't know how the gospel addresses their sin. And they're still weighed down by their sin. And this is important, ladies. They don't know how the gospel addresses or dethrones their impulses, their desires. 
and how it changes them for godly desires. And they weren't equipped well with the gospel to know how to deal with their sinful desires. They're always learning something. But it's not heart shepherding to the word of God to get to the knowledge of truth. So they're vulnerable to attack. Wow, we need to be vigilant because attacks against Christian households, they come disguised. And they look benign and they look harmless. We, uh, you might want to write this down. 2 Corinthians 11.13. It's a reference you can look up later. Here Paul warns, for such men are false prophets, deceitful workers disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. So Christian sister, no matter whether we live by ourselves or we live with parents or roommates, we have a house full of children, we need to be on guard for our households. What do we need to do? All right, let's, let's make a to-do list, okay? The only way we can make sure something or someone is really proclaiming the true gospel is by doing what bank tellers and cashiers are taught to do when looking for counterfeit money. What do they do? They study the real thing. And when they get a large bill, they hold it up to the light to see if it passes scrutiny. Well, let's be wise. Let's learn by their example. Let's evaluate everything we are opening our doors to. We use the word of God to evaluate um, before we say, come on in. And we need to use the word of God to scrutinize everything we read or listen to or watch on TV or on the Internet or the radio. We need to put it all where? Under the authority of the Bible. Let's not be fooled by something or someone just because it says Christian in front of it. Okay, we need to do that due diligence. And that's the only way we can be equipped to do that properly. It's by living out discipline one, prayerfully shepherding her heart toward God and the word of God, and in particular, the gospel. This world is a pleasure-seeking world. It's pleasure-worshipping. And unfortunately, you know, we're all too eager to follow along, not realizing that in doing so, we're missing the ultimate pleasures found in knowing the God, our God. That's why Psalm 1611 is listed on your outline. You will make known to me the paths of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand are pleasures forever. Being disciplined in the Wellspring Disciplines helps us avoid being weak women. Being disciplined in the Disciplines helps us develop our Bible biceps so that we're women who prayerfully shepherd our hearts toward God through the Word of God and in particular the Gospel. Why? Look at Psalm 1611. Because the Word of God reveals the path of life. How? When we spend time worshiping God and basking in His Word, we're going to experience abundant joy and eternal pleasures as we unfold the riches of his glorious grace. Sarah says, you're never going to be sad that you chose time to spend in the word, that you chose your time well. Okay, we also need to be on guard against exalting our households above the gospel. So now we're going to go to Matthew 10, 34 through 39. And we're quickly running out of time, so we're going to go fast, ladies. Number seven, the family and home can become an obstacle to the gospel. So Christian, if I asked you what is, the more, what is more important than your identity as women, wives, mothers, daughters, sisters, grandmothers, mothers-in-law, aunts, etc., what would you say? Well, the answer should be it's our identity in Christ. 
Now, there are many verses for you to look up on your own, and I'm going to recap the main idea here. Our identity in Christ is who we are first and foremost, and then everything else falls under that identity, including our families. Now, Jesus made a strong point that the gospel of the kingdom is first and everything else is second, including our family. You come follow me. That's his point in Matthew 10:34. So first one person in the household comes to Christ, and then they are to take the gospel to the family. Sometimes we see it in the New Testament, like in, like in the Philippian jailer or Cornelius or Lydia. The whole family comes to Christ. Praise the Lord. But Jesus is teaching that's not always the case. When we bring the gospel to our family, we might actually find that family members of our household become our enemies. Hmm. And if the family begins to stand in the way of the gospel, that believer must follow Christ and not the family. And this is important. Listen. Even while she stays in that family, seeking to display the changes that Christ has made in her as she loves her family, as she serves, and as she forgives. Okay, I need to keep reminding myself that my identity is in Christ and no one and nothing else. That's why I can love and esteem and serve those closest to me regardless of their reaction. Um, because the gospel has an impact on my life. Okay? Do you want to see how Jesus put household relationships in their proper connection? Later on you can look at Matthew 12. And Jesus says in verse 50, Whoever does the will of my Father, who is in heaven, he is my brother, my sister, and my mother. Now, what practical difference does this make? On your outline, we've written, we've put some notes for you to look at. You can look at those later. If I put my household identity first, what happens? Or if I put my identity in Christ first, what happens? Yes, I still may be Irish. I still may have a temper, but that doesn't give me the excuse to to go ahead and sin using that temper. And that's the idea. So please take a look at that later. And single gals, we're going to please keep listening because this next part is for you right now. Don't think that you, you're going to deal with this later, okay, if you ever get engaged. Okay. Number eight, submission to a husband requires a strong grasp on the gospel. In Ephesians 5, 22 through 24, and you don't need to turn to it if you don't want to, but it says this, Wives, be subject to your husbands as the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is head of the church, he himself being Savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also wives ought to be subject to their husbands in everything. Remember, ladies, there are not two people in the marriage, there are three, right? The husband, the wife, and Christ. We need to think of a marriage. We need to think of Christ and the church. Married or not, we need to be the kind of women who treasure, who support, and who build up marriages and how we think about marriage, how we talk about marriage, and how we respond to marriage. And that changes that word, that dreaded word submission, into a beautiful word picture because Christ, again and again, what did he do? He submitted himself to the will of the Father just as husbands what do they do? They submit themselves to the headship of the Lord. And wives, what do we do? We submit ourselves to the servant leadership of our husbands. We believers submit to Christ in everything. 
because of all that has been done for us, through us, on the shed blood of the cross. That's why, what do we need? The gospel. When do we need it? Now. We need to rehearse that all and all, over and over. What happens if your husband, uh, you struggle to follow him? Well, we can still follow him. He's our earthly leader because our heavenly leader, Jesus, is always trustworthy. Jesus is always sovereign. He's always good. And that, that's our identity, right? That is where we rest our confidence. We're submitting to our husband. We can encourage each other to do that because our identity is where? It's under Christ. So finally, number nine, later on you can read about Aquila and Priscilla's dynamic duo relationship. Okay? And later on, in Acts 18, 24 through 28, you can read how they helped Apollos. And he didn't have a complete view of the gospel, and they helped him understand that. What a blessing. Then Apollos was sent off, and he was useful for the gospel. And then we see these two, again, in Romans 16, 3 through 5, where Paul is thanking them. So, let's wrap up. What are we seeing in all this? The heart of God in scripture and for the household is what? Right? It's together. We've seen that a woman who loves God and places a priority on the spiritual influence of her household with her heart for the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what we see in Discipline 2. We put that right after Discipline 1. We can't get past that. There's no room anywhere in scripture to wiggle around that. Finally, it's our responsibility to bring a gospel aroma to the rest of our household. It's our responsibility to use the gospel to guard and to protect our households. And it's our responsibility, ladies, to root out false thinking or any thinking that is devoid of the gospel that could come in, that could conceive us, and that could poison our families. Beware, but also be encouraged. I'm going to pray very quickly, and then you can go on to your groups. Lord, thank you for the good news of your gospel. Please help us remember we need your gospel, and we need it now. We pray as we get into our groups that we would be able to use the time well, and we thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, ladies.